Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Beef Central and Alenco Animal Health. And today, a guest who is used to the heat, in other words, he cops the blame for just about anything bad that happens in regional and rural Australia. Certain city people have even blamed him and his colleagues for floods and bushfires. He is, of course, David Kelly Littleproud, Deputy Leader of the National Party, and holding the crucial portfolio of Australia's Minister for Agriculture. Minister, welcome to Beef Central's Grill. Yeah, thanks for having me. I assume you you have your steak medium rare like everybody else in this program, but importantly, are you in charge of the barbecue? (laughs) I I am, uh, but uh, don't mind having it cooked for me either. Uh, Any meal I don't have to cook is a a bonus as far as I'm concerned, but I am a medium rare, and I don't mind a bit of mushroom uh, gravy over it as well. That's the, the easy question. The heat is coming. But first, overall, regional and rural Australia are doing pretty well. Good, even great seasons. Uh, record cattle yeah. prices. Grain prices are very solid. All the, the, the rain keeps falling. The picture looks very, very positive, mostly. Yeah, look, it's easy being the Australian Agriculture Minister at the moment, but I can tell you have had some pretty dark days with the drought and fires. And, and we've had some floods as well, but um, where we lost half a, half a million heads only two, two, nearly three years ago. So uh, we are hitting a sweet spot. We've got to enjoy it. We've got to make uh, hay while the sun shines in terms of the industry. But I think the fundamentals are there, and I think that's the exciting thing is that we've been through some pretty dark days. The national herd slowly but surely rebuilding. But we're seeing some challenges globally that are playing into our hands, and I think um, that's that's playing on the prices, which is good. And I think fundamentally, um, you know, from our perspective, we think that they'll be there for, for a little bit longer to come. Uh, particularly when you look at the demand that's there and some of the challenges in the US and even in Southern America. Uh, so, look, we're looking to a, to another good year ahead, as far as we're concerned, so long as the rain comes. And, you know, God willing, it has been, uh, and it comes in the right quantities, and it's about time it is because we've uh, we've had our, our fair share of bad luck. But um, I, I think that what we are seeing also is a little bit of a shift in terms of aggregation um, of family farms as well. I think we're seeing... Uh, land prices go up and we're seeing some that want to exit the industry. But the good thing is and the exciting thing is, is I think that the family farms are continuing. They always will. They're just There's going to be fewer of them, but they'll be bigger. And I think that's what we're seeing also on the, on the land price as well, um, where families are really doubling down in their commitment to the beef industry and to agriculture, which I think is exciting because we're bringing back the next generation. We have lost generations of young people out of the bush, uh, out of agriculture, because it's all been too hard. Well, I think we've fundamentally turned that turned that around. There's a quid to be made, and we're bringing that generation home. And that should be our mantra now, is to bring the next generation home after that as well and, and keep building our industry. And this is the foundation stone, I think, over the next 12, 18 months that we should be building as an industry to lay those stones and to change our language. It's not just me that needs to be spooking. It needs to be all of us. We've got to be bloody loud and proud about what we do, how we do it, and, and the, the next generation can make money out of it and they can have the lifestyle and the, and the career pathway that we've had. Yeah, fair enough too. It's a, it, it, I can't remember or I can't recall a time when everything looked so positive. We're going to chat about uh, markets and trade later, but let's get off the bitumen and onto the hard stuff. The move by Australia to zero emissions by 2050. Now, from where I sit and a lot of people out in rural Australia sit, I'm sure it appears regional and rural Australia, including, of course, our farmers and graziers, Regional and rural will do the heavy lifting for the bulk of this mission on emissions? Yeah, and look, let me explain why why we had to sign up. 
Uh, we're, we're a nation of 26 million people. We produce enough food for 80 million people. If we don't engage with the world, we don't trade with the world, then the world can tell us to take a running jump. And as much as we'd like to tell them to take a running jump, we can't because we have to trade. And let me tell you that if we didn't sign up, we didn't make a commitment, then not only would that put pressure on our commodity prices, that those that had signed up would, would look for a way uh, to actually tariff our, our commodity, but we're also under great pressure in terms of our capital markets. So if you've got a mortgage, you've got a loan out there on your property, um, you're going to pay a 1% to 2 3% more than what you are now. Uh, now, while there's plenty of minority parties running around, billionaires running around saying we shouldn't have signed up, well, that's good for them. They can probably afford to pay 2 or 3 extra percent on their mortgage uh, and, and a few extra dollars less on their commodities. But most farmers out there can't. And so what we've tried to do is then understand that if we do sign up to this, how do we get the pathway to, to have the least resistance on our farmers, who I believe, as a Queenslander, uh, paid uh, the biggest price last time around with vegetation management laws. The federal government paid state governments uh, through the National Heritage Trust $350 million, and the states put it in their pockets, not in farmers' pockets. And we're working with the NFF around ways and how can we be, how we can be smart to, to try and recalibrate what happened there, but also making sure that if there is to be emissions uh, reductions in agriculture, that we get rewarded for it financially and that it should be voluntary. There should be no mandatory, no mandatory legislation where we're imposing the will on farmers, where if there's to be agricultural offsets, well, that's okay. That's only if the farmer decides it and that's only if the farmer gets paid what he wants for it. Um, that's the that's the ethos in which we've taken to it. But we think there is an opportunity. We work with the Cattle Council. I've got to say, Cattle Council have been very forward-leaning in this, whether it be on soil carbon or whether it be on the stewardship program, to make sure we get the balance right and to recalibrate some of those programs. I've got a real problem with carbon farming. Um, looking after southwest Queensland, we have seen a, a lot of passive investors, particularly from metropolitan areas, come in, buy large tracts of land and walk away. They don't manage it. Uh, they take the income out of the town and they take the families out of the town. And I'm working now with Angus Taylor to recalibrate that and to cap that to make sure we get a balance right around farmers being able to do that, uh, but also maintaining productive agricultural capacity. And Look, that's I, my aim. I'm going to get to carbon credits and carbon farming. I agree with you about that's a real issue. I just want to start at the, at the grassroots just let's pretend I'm a farmer. I could be anywhere in any state. I work about 2,000 hectares. I grow wheat, chickpeas, maybe some sorghum. I farm up to the fence line. About 95% of my acreage is worked. I have a big tractor, a header, a smaller tractor, a couple of quad bikes, a ute, a semi-trailer of sorts, a land cruiser, a real car to go to town, a diesel generator. Most of these cars or vehicles or machinery run on diesel. How does my farm become carbon neutral? Well, it probably won't, um, unless we can do something around soil carbon, and don't underestimate that. That's where um, we're looking not only on on broadacre, also on grazing to see how we can how we can achieve that. So, particularly if you want to go then into the carbon farming and the stewardship, you'd have to lock up land, which we're not overly excited about. We want to make sure that we keep, particularly in the higher rainfall where where there is broadacre agriculture, we maintain that. But that's why soil carbon will come into the, into that aspect. But this is a whole of economy, not just agriculture that has to pay. So we, we do understand that we can't take away the tools of trade and you're going to need to continue to have them. Now, technology may move in terms of us having full-on diesel. You know, even Toyota's moving away from the, the 200 Series V8 into a hybrid model now. Um, so technology uh, is itself moving towards that. But 
that's something that um, it, it should be just part of business as usual. So what we're saying is that there will be technology advancements, but in terms of if you've got a broad acre property, soil carbon probably the way in which you may be able to participate, as, as it will be if you've got a grazing block. But we, we're trying to work that science up, and we, and we want you to be rewarded for it if that's what you actually undertake. But that's choice. This should all be voluntary. We don't want to get into a case where we're mandating things. Because the last time any, anyone mandated anything on climate change, they brought in a climate tax. And that's you know that's not what we want to do. We don't want to bring in an emissions tax. So we're saying that we we want to trust in the smarts of the 21st century to reduce emissions uh, and maintaining our standard of living, but making it voluntary. Because even when we're doing it voluntary, we've still we've still beat all our commitments. We we haven't had a mandatory target here. We've had a voluntary one of 26 to 28 percent for Paris. We're going to hit probably 35. Because people have voluntarily adopted the technology that's been provided to them. And, and the world will always find a technological solution if, if it is a global problem. You only have to look at a pandemic. We found a vaccine within, within about 12 months or less than. So I think this is where we differ from the other mob. We're simply saying technology will solve this. We won't mandate it. People will adopt it, but farmers in particular should have an opportunity I, I, to participate. Minister, I hope you're right. My machinery on this mythical farm that I have... There is no known fuel, obviously now and in prospect, which can power and give a big tractor the necessary grunt for it to operate correctly. So if I have one of those big tractors, do I have to buy carbon credits use it to use my machinery to make my farm neutral? No, not in Australia you won't. Uh, and that's why we're saying, and even if you're a coal miner, you'll still have a job well beyond 2030, well beyond 2040 and probably well beyond 2050. We'll still need coal. We'll still need gas. We'll still need diesel, um, and, and that's the that's the stark reality of it. Uh, and while there's a lot of and there's a lot of emotion from both sides of the extremities of this debate, but in the middle is is the practical application of what how the world will operate. And we will ne- still need we still will need to to move big big machines. And so there still will be diesel. And in Australia, we'll still need to burn coal. And we'll do that using carbon capture storage and probably mixing the burning of coal with ammonia to reduce the emissions and to make the CCS cheaper. Uh, and gas, the same with gas. Um, we'll, still, we'll still use gas as a, as a source of energy. And so this is the thing is, I think we get caught up in the emotion of this rather than the practical reality. And if the extremities of both sides bug it off and let the sensible Senate work through this and understand the practical reality of what will happen is that you'll still be able to put diesel in your tractor. And there'll be there'll be some sort of uh, investment that John Deere's probably and Case are probably uptaking now in terms of what that might look like in in reducing the emissions through burning diesel. But that that is where technology will will, will fix that solution. Will fix that problem. We, we don't intend to impose it, and we don't intend to take those tools of trade away. That's not how a government should work. But Our job simply put the environment and infrastructure around you, and then get the hell out of your life. Carbon credits, uh, Minister, is there going to be a market for that? I mean, where can you buy them and who's going to police that market? Well, in, in Australia, we have, we have um, a very very structured process. And at the moment, I think it trades around $18. But we're saying that there's a cap on that up to $24, $25. And we do that through uh, the ERF. So it is capped. Uh, now, that's, that's not a, a policy setting that we don't intend to change. Uh, we did, don't did you say otherwise, $25, is that $25 a ton? And, and that's effectively what we're saying is by utilising utilizing the ERF, that's effectively what we are saying at the moment. At the moment, the auctions are going around 
I think around eighteen dollars uh, a ton is the is the last auction price I saw. So the reality is, is um, what we've said is that we don't intend to let uh, a whole a whole mechanism where you've got day traders sitting at desks in Sydney uh, trading the, this commodity uh, and, and it gets out of hand and it becomes a tax. That's what we're concerned about. So we've yeah. had we've had a policy of real action of investing in technologies that reduce emissions, uh, and then if you're looking at things like carbon farming, well then there's a price in terms of the carbon abatement you can get, but that's always been within the range uh, of the ERF. What about foreign owners and foreign buyers? We've got some uh, good, uh, mostly uh, good people running uh, properties for foreign owners at present. Will they be allowed to transfer their carbon credits out of the country? Yeah, and this is this is the thing that we really need to, to tighten up on, and I know Angus is doing a bit of work about this, because this, this does my head in where we've got foreign raiders coming in uh, and, and utilising carbon credits from Australia and, and then taking them home. And this is where we need to make sure that we get the process right. Uh, and we also put the heat on our own corporates. Uh, they're all big and, and, and hairy running around with their chests out telling us how good they are and what, what good corporate citizens they are. But if you look underneath the bonnet of, of a fair few of them is they buy a few credits here in Australia and then they go and buy junk credits out of out of South America or you know in Southeast Asia somewhere that really have no validity whatsoever. They're going off and buying an acre of the Amazon uh, where they've got no currency or understanding and, and, and no transparency of what that actually is. And, the tra- and, 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 and Minister, I can assure you, the trees are often knocked down within a week of them being bought. Exactly, and that's why that's why the, the next phase that Australia will be taking and taking strongly to the world is. Well, that's great. You all want to come out and beat your chest, but let's let's look at the audit process of these credits. Let's make sure there's like for like uh, that you can value them, because I think you're going to find that some of our corporates and corporates around the world are going to have it, have their pants pulled down when they when they get exposed to the fact that they've got a lot of these junk credits. So can the I thing get... that we've done, and we sorry, Kirk. no, no, just saying. That I, I want to make it clear. Will you ban foreign owners from buying carbon credits and transferring them out of the country? Well, that's, uh, that's outside my remit. That's under Angus's Taylor's remit, and I, I don't hate to make a comment on that, but let me just say that Angus is doing work around that, like, and I should, it's not really within my remit to make commentary on that, but let me just say that he is, he is uh, working through that ma- as a matter of course for us uh, and understanding the importance, while also making sure that Australian corporates uh, do their fair share here in Australia before they start throwing money at, at schemes overseas as well. Time for a quick break. We'll be back in a moment after this brief message from our sponsors, Elenco Animal Health. Don't let your cattle suffer the setbacks caused by buffalo fly. Combat buffalo fly with Corral, Patriot and Silence insecticidal ear tags. Providing up to four months of long-lasting fly control. Elenco has you covered with a range of ear tags to suit your rotation program. Contact Alanco and find out how you can win the Buffalo Fly Battle now. You're back on the grill and I'm talking to David Littleproud, Australia's Minister for Agriculture. I've got another property, incidentally, another mythical property, Minister. This is a big grazing You're doing pretty well. (laughs) 250,000 hectares, most of it grazing country, but a lot of scrub and... uh, useless country for not good for grazing is that perceived 
Tiger Country now becoming valuable in terms of its uh, carbon credit sense? Well, this is what I'm trying to work through now is uh, we've got a pilot to the stewardship program where we're the first country in the world that can measure an improvement in biodiversity. So it's called carbon plus biodiversity, so C plus B. And what we're trying to do is is to get you a carbon payment for, for new plantings in, that, in those areas, but also the improvement in biodiversity is a premium on top of that. So you get a second payment. And then we're also working out a, a brand, a seal for that. So because we're the first country and we can prove how to measure biodiversity, we think that they'll have currency in the market. In fact, the Americans, I've already had a conversation with my counterpart in the US, and the Europeans, in fact, are wanting this to, to sign up to this uh, so that if you have this on your property, you can brand your beef, your, your wool, your, your sheep meat, um, even if you've, you've got a mixed uh, farming, your, your grain, with this biodiversity seal that we'd hopefully get your premium as well. So what we're saying is that we don't want this to take over productive land. We don't want this to become an MIS of, of the timber, timber industry. What we want this to happen is to have this over landscape that needs to be rejuvenated and, in fact, cost the cocky uh, a dollar to manage. Uh, so, But instead of costing them, then they could get a financial uh, a reward for it by doing some, some simple things around making sure they plant particular trees native to that natural resource management area and grasses. And what we're trying to do is simplify the process and the audit process that we use technology. We put a satellite over the top of you uh, and we simply get the cocky to stand there with a phone with the GPS coordinates and take some photos. And, and they can then say, well, the tree's planted, the grass is there. We then know there's so many ants and so many geckos, there's going to be so many snakes, brobils, koalas and so on. So they can, they can verify that payment. We're also trying to do, which is where I wanted, the reason why I tried to come up with this was to square the ledger, particularly for my mob out, out in Western Queensland that had vegetation management laws. We're looking at an, a pilot now. We're about to start on enhanced remnant vegetation. So if you've got a map that has uh, that's coloured, what we're trying to say is, well, okay, that's the baseline. But if you do a few other management things that you're probably, many farmers are probably doing anyway, can we get you that biodiversity payment? I can't get you the carbon because that's been accounted for. Uh, under Kyoto, but what I can try and do is give you that biodiversity payment and let let you put a seal on your beef. So we're working through those pilots now. They're just being, in fact, the remnant vegetation, we went out into six NRM groups because we're just starting to make, we've got to prove the science so that the world believes us. We went out to six NRM groups and 190 farmers put their hand up to play in that. They've got coloured maps on their ve- on, for their veg maps. Uh, and they want they want to be part of that to try and make a quit out of it. So we're trying to we're trying to be smart about using unproductive land to rejuvenate it, but to maintain productive land and, and to make a dollar. So that's that's the whole essence of what we're trying to do with the stewardship program. And then you overlay soil carbon into that. That could actually be another piece of the puzzle as well. Once the science is finished, that and we put two hundred million dollars effectively into getting more soil tests to be able to work that science up. Uh, Minister, it's, it sounds a broad-ranging and complex business, will there inevitably be some big monolithic government department to run this and fund it and police it, etc.? Well, we're hoping not because there's already one that can do that and that's why we're trying to fit within the existing remit of what Angus Taylor has and what I've got. Uh, and so we're also trying to make sure that it's, it's a, particularly for the biodiversity, it will be a market platform. So the, the uh, Business Council of Australia have we been working with around them being part of this so they put the liquidity into it rather than the Australian taxpayer. 
But what we're trying to do is work within the existing arrangements that Angus has and try to simplify them to make it easier for the farmer. We're not as excited about about the uh, the middleman that comes in all the time um, and, and tries to tries to um, bring all this together and the farmer only gets a piece out. But we're trying to simplify it to the point of the farmer being able to do this themselves. And, and that may also be around investing more in natural resource management groups to be able to send someone out to sit at the kitchen table to help you fill the piece of paper out rather than the farmer sitting there tearing his hair out or her hair out. So we're working through that to simplify it, but trying there'll be no new departments. It'll just work within existing remit. Have you got much uh, faith, Minister, in the possible advent of hydrogen as a fuel? Um, I do. Uh, I, I, I'm a big believer in technology, and I think particularly if there's a problem the world wants to solve, then invariably um, it solves it because capital flows into it to solve that problem. Uh, there's plenty of capital going into hydrogen. You know, we've got a couple of billionaires floating around Australia that are making pretty big statements. So I'm a little sceptical of, of, of that. I mean, obviously they're in it for a quid and good luck to them, uh, just as long as the Australian taxpayer doesn't have to fork out too much. If, if they're so confident of it, they shouldn't be waiting for the Australian government to kick the tin if they're so confident about the technology. But I still believe that there is enough investment around the world, not just from billionaires in Australia, but, but in other parts of the world that, that, that may generate this technology um, and, and get it up and going. But, you know, it's still unproven to the extent of, of a mass scale, and that's why I'll wait and see. But I'm, I'm hopeful and confident that, that technology will solve that. Yes, Elon Musk described hydrogen fuel as mind-boggling stupid. And yeah, he, look, he looks at California where it's going gangbusters, on the surface at least, but you look into what California's done, they've given a billion American dollars subsidies to, to the hydrogen people. Yeah, and, and look, this is the thing: is that you know we've got a, we've got a billionaire here uh, giving plenty of gratuitous advice from the sidelines, uh, and while he's espoused a billion dollars, when you cut it and eat it, it's not quite a billion dollars he's giving. He wants to give out. It's only if the Australian taxpayer puts out money as well. So what we're saying is, is part of our net zero plan is we have we have said that there's a twenty billion dollar investment over the next ten years to get there, but that's it. We then that then means that business has to put their hand in their pocket. So we'll only cut our check once they've cut theirs. Uh, we're not going to have a blank check approach, uh, but we'll we'll pick the technologies that we believe will drive our economy and keep us going. That's why carbon capture storage is one of those that we've that we've picked and picked heavily. Uh, and, and obviously, hydrogen is one is, is the other one that we're working up and making sure that we make investment. Um, we'll only do that if if the likes of Twiggy wants to put out um, you know multiplier of what the Australian taxpayer is. You face an enormous education problem out there for regional and rural Australia, two farmers and graziers. Any plans about uh, a hotline or a, 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 an emissions hotline for farmers and graziers to discuss their issues and see if you've got any answers for them? Well, they got a hotline if they're in the electorate of Maranoa straight to my office, uh, <laughs> four electorate offices, so... There is a hotline uh, all the way through to their local I'll federal get, member. I'll get all those graces from other Kimberley to give you a ring. Um, <laughs> Minister, let's move away from emissions now for the moment. A couple of other hot button, button topics. Ag visas. I know they've been spoken of, but how soon are we likely to see people arriving to help uh, over the crippling labour shortage all through agriculture? Well, effectively, we're just waiting on countries to sign up. So we're in bilaterals now with four countries. Uh, and as soon as they sign up, we've already done the work with uh, some labour hire companies and also 
some individual employers that once one of them signs up, that we will we will be ready to bring people in. But these are sovereign nations; they get to decide whether they uh, agree to take Austra- uh, workers into Australia or not, not not us. But one of the biggest challenges we're having is the Australian Union movement and the Labor Party. I mean, even today, they've come out and lambasted Australian farmers uh, for exploiting uh, workers, foreign workers in this country, which is just disgraceful. Um, you know, to, to make a generalisation and to demonise Australian farmers based off a very, very small cohort that have done the wrong thing, and, and we acknowledge it, but in any industry, um, there is a small cohort that does the wrong thing. And I would suggest even in the Australian Union movement, in fact, some of those um, have had very high-profiled court cases. So it's if, if you're going to run the same test across the Australian Union movement to Australian farmers, you'd have to call them hypocrites if they're sitting there and demonising Australian farmers. And, and for the Labor Party now to take their marching orders from the, from the AEWU is disgraceful. So they're, just, they're saying that it shouldn't come because we are going to exploit these workers. We will not exploit these workers. Yes, there is a small cohort that does the wrong thing. We'll get rid of them. But unfortunately, what's happening is in those bilaterals, that is playing out. These embassies are saying, well, we, we are really concerned. We are hearing all this noise that, that Australian farmers exploit foreign workers. Uh, and that is making it challenging for us to get a country to sign up to it at the moment. We've got to be honest. They are asking a lot of questions, going back and forth, wanting new protections, different protections that, that really um, we've never seen before. And for the vast majority of farmers, we don't need. And this uh, this is just um, unfortunate. It's disgraceful that the union movement has had this scare campaign. But we will push on and we will get a country to sign up. And once we get it, it's also, this is the most important part of this ag visa, Kerry, is that this is a pathway to permanent residency. This is the next generation of migrants coming to regional Australia to build regional Australia, to build agriculture. They will come on, on a three-year visa and then they must do an, an extended period in agriculture in the regions to then qualify, to then qualify for permanent residency. Um, and the reason we're doing that is we believe if you're in the bush for five years, you'll you'll have roots down, you'll have family at school, you'll, want, you'll have a career in in whether it be in a meat processor or on a property, and you won't want to go. So, and, and so, are we, we, we talk, talking six months or three months or six weeks? What's the time frame before the first feet hit the ground? We are hopeful, and Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, who are, who are undertaking the bilateral negotiations, believe they'll still have the first tranche in before the end of the year. But again, that'll depend on a country sign up. So. Uh, we are ready to move within a matter of weeks as soon as the country signs up to get workers. In fact, these these labour hire companies and improved employers, we've been working in each of those four countries of finding satisfactory skilled workers to come in um, as soon as one of them sign up. So we are simply, we are at the go at, at the go button stage. We are just needing one of those countries to press the go button and and then we are ready to move. Now, well, final question, Minister. The Senate inquiry into meat labelling. Now, meat is a definition, actually, in export legislation. How on earth did we, one of the world's biggest exporters of red meat, get to the stage where we can't honestly say meat is meat and tofu is tofu and beans are beans? Why can't a government just say this calling a plant-based product meat is simply 100% dishonest? Yeah, look, I agree, and that's why I try to bring all the parties together and, and do this voluntarily, uh, and they wouldn't play nice. We've got, unfortunately, this organisation called Fazans, and Fazans is the Food Standards of Australia and New Zealand, and unfortunately, it's a federated model. 
And that means the states get a vote in this, not just me. We only get one vote as a Commonwealth, and New Zealand gets a vote, and then the states will get a vote. And so I have to, I have to be able to get them to agree with me to change this definition, um, or we are going to have to go down a, another corridor, which is going to be quite difficult to, to achieve. So what we are trying to, to articulate is, and, and I've got to congratulate Senator McDonald on this, in taking the baton up for me, is to go and do this Senate inquiry to actually demonstrate that we should have truth in labelling. And it's as simple as this. Um, this is about a, a, an emerging industry, and I'm all for entrepreneurship. I'm all for someone going out and having a crack. But use your own intellectual property. Don't use someone else's. And the perfect example of that is the grains industry. And there were leaders in the grains industry when I first brought this up and brought everyone together that said to these, to these uh, fake meat guys, you know, we went through this. We, we created this thing called margarine. We didn't, we didn't go and call it canola butter. We didn't go and call it anything other than our own product. We created our own intellectual property. So go and have the courage to go and create your own intellectual property. It's not, a, it's not at the stage where it's taking over our supermarket, but the supermarkets themselves are, won't even separate them at the aisles, even though they've been asked. The supermarkets in this country are, are disgraceful. Uh, uh, they, are, they are anti-farmer at every step they go. Uh, in terms of dealing with primary producers, you know, we have had so much trouble with them. And the opportunity for them to actually help, even as a practical solution at a, at a, at a shop front, um, they even turn their noses up at. So we are going to work through this. Um, but before this becomes a bigger problem, it's what we're trying to do is achieve an outcome before it gets bigger than what it is now. Minister, you're a busy man. And I thank you for your time on the grill today. Uh, good to be with you, Kerry. Well, that was our final episode of 2021. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast series. We'll be taking a break, but we'll be turning up the heat again when we return for our second season in 2022. Thank you so much to all our participants. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in contact with us or you have an interview suggestion, you can email us at theweeklygrill at beefcentral.com. And if you'd like to listen to any of the podcasts again, the necessary buttons are on the Beef Central website. On behalf of our podcast partner, Elenco Animal Health, and all the team at Beef Central, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this has been The Weekly Grill.